Okay, first things first, like we always do, let's go over our, our catechism questions for this, this section of the catechism. So we'll start with question 12. Question 12, what is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Okay, we've, we've already been through this question, breaking down each phrase and going into each phrase a little bit more in depth. We did an intro lesson. We talked about God creating all things of nothing, the, the implications of that, everything being created by the word of his power and considering his omnipotence and Jesus as the word and the creative agent and the Trinity. In the space of six days, we considered six literal days. And then last week, we considered how God made all things very good and what that means. Then, question 13. So we'll start today. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Okay, so we're going to start on this one today. And I'll be honest, if I was writing this, I probably would have put after his own image as the first uh, clause in this. And this answer to this question, um, to me, that, that's kind of the more important one or the, the one that has the most implications for um, the rest of the phrase. But we're going we're gonna to take it in order as, as the, the catechism authors wrote this. So we're going to say, we're going to consider today how God created man, male and female. And as you can imagine, this is very timely for, for our day. So we're going we're gonna to consider everything, everything that that means. And so this, this really should be a, a topic that is easily taken just at face value, right? Just that God created man, male, and female is pretty easily observable. Um, just a, a mere 25 or 30 years ago, pretty much everyone on the face of the planet would accept the fact that each person is made male or female. But we live in a time of confusion. We live in a time of lies and delusions. So as a consequence of this, this phrase, God created man, male, and female, should really at most just take a mere, a few mere moments to completely flesh out. But because we live in the time that we live in, there are tons of debates about this very simple and very seemingly straightforward phrase. And so, so this is a simple phrase, because, make no mistake, it, it really is a simple phrase. It's very simple to understand, even without examining any sort of biblical evidence at all. It's really blatantly obvious to anyone who's being honest with themselves that there are only two genders. There's only two sexes. And if you examine each individual person, you can clearly see, you can empirically see, you can definitively see whether this person was created male or female. Pretty, pretty sure everyone here is in agreement with that. We'll go through this a bit more in detail later. If you're not in agreement with that, we probably need to talk later on. So there's, there's no denying it. It's really not complicated at all, actually. It's actually very simple. But like I said, we live in a time of lies. We live in a time of confusion. So we're going to discuss this issue a little bit more towards the end. So 
First, we're going to see what the Bible says about this. And we're going to go into this recognizing that the Bible does not even consider the possibility of any sort of transgender man or transgender woman. So we're going to look at it to see what the Bible says about God creating all people, either male or female. And so let's see what, see what the Bible says about this. First of all, the Bible says that men and women are created equally as image bearers of God. And those being created equally, these two genders belong to the creation pattern. So the first place we're going to go is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So you can turn there if you want. So two genders belong to the creation pattern. And men and women are created equally as image bearers of God. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Remember, this is at the end of the first, first chapter of the creation account. It says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. So that last phrase is obviously the most important for the topic we're discussing today. It's pretty blatantly obvious in the first chapter of Scripture that God created man, male and female. Male and female, he created them. So, once again, to reiterate the point right now, men and women are created equally as image bearers of God. And this belongs to the creation pattern. And the second thing we're going to consider is that the complementary nature of the genders is meant to lead to enriching cooperation between those two. So turn over to Genesis 2 then. So the complementary nature of the genders is meant to lead to enriching cooperation. So chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So as a side note, whenever I read this, I can just like, you know, feel Adam when he wakes up and he sees the woman for the first time. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is a woman, right? You can, you can just feel it. As, as a man, I can, I can feel Adam seeing the woman for the first time and say, man, God is good to me, right? Um, and so you can see here, once again, that, that Adam is excited that God has given him a woman. And so God creates woman from man. So it's obvious here from the Bible that God has created the male and female. And the other thing is that, like I've said, the complementary nature of the genders is meant to lead to some sort of enriching cooperation here because the one was created as a helper for man. 
She was taken from man to be with him and they are to, to rule together. They have to, to dominion over the earth together. They are to have children and multiply together and to build families together. And it's supposed to be a cooperation between the two. So they're created equally as image bearers of God. It belongs to the creation pattern. This is supposed to be a complementary pattern that is going to lead some to enriching cooperation between the man and the woman as they go forth and they rule the earth. Okay. So, so far, we've got that down. In this next section, we're going to look at some of the aspects of this as some of the results of, of God creating um, man as male and female. And I'll be, be honest, I lifted most of this directly from my ESV study Bible. They have a section in the back that says that's titled Humanity as Male and Female, and it was really good. And uh, I didn't really think I needed to reinvent the wheel here. So this is, we're just kind of really just going to go through this. It's pretty much taken directly from that. I just wanted to, to cite that as appropriate. And so what we've got here is that men and women are completely equal in value before the eyes of God. Hey, got that. And they're also distinct in the way that they relate to each other and the way that they function. You can see that very clearly if you just observe men and women in general, that men and women are different. We get that. Um, don't let anyone lie to you and say that there's no difference between men and women because there are vast differences between men and women. I promise you. And the way that they're distinct in the way that they relate to each other and the, the way that they function. The distinct roles of men and women are grounded, first of all, in the nature of God. So someone wants to go to 1 Corinthians 11.3 and read that. Someone else can stay there because we're going we're gonna to be in 1 Corinthians again in just a second. And someone can go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 2 if you want. So 1 Corinthians 11.3 is the first thing. And this is the distinct roles of men and women are grounded in the nature of God. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 11.3. Someone's there. Okay, so then the distinct, you can see here, the distinct roles of men and women are grounded in the nature of God because the head of Christ is God. That's what gives us the pattern of of the man being the head of the woman. So you can, you can see that here. It's just grounded in the nature of God, and these distinct roles for men and women are grounded in the very nature of God himself. Okay, second point. The distinct roles of men and women are part of God's very good creation. So if someone is still in 1 Corinthians 11, if you'll read 8 through 10. Anyone else? So, there we go. Woman was created for man, but this was part of God's very good creation. Even before the fall, this is part of the good, the very good that we considered last week. Woman being created for man. And the distinct roles are part of the very good creation. Also, 2 Timothy 2, 13. There you go. Adam was formed first and then Eve. This was part of the very good part of creation before the fall. The distinct roles here are very good. 
Next, these role distinctions in no way minimize the worth of men or women. So people try to argue, a lot of the egalitarians will say that because we say that there are role distinctions here, we value men more than we value women, and that is absolutely false. We all recognize that men and women are both made in the image of God, that they are both equally of value before God. That is very clear from Scripture, but it's also very clear from Scripture that there are role distinctions between men and women, both in the family and in the church. So, it doesn't minimize the worth of men or women. Both are equally made in God's image, and both are equally fallen. We know that from Genesis 3. We know that from Romans 3. We know that from all of Scripture that men and women are both equally fallen as well. Okay? They're both equally to be resurrected, and both are equally redeemable. So equally redeemable. Someone will go to Galatians 3, and someone will go to 1 Peter 3. Okay. Someone's at Galatians 3, read verse 28. There you go. There is no male and no female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, some people, I've seen people that advocate for transgenderism and Christianity try to use this verse to say there is no male or female. That is really completely out of the context. Talking about the eisegesis, right? Trying to stretch something to where the, the scripture is not saying right there. It's, it's saying that men and women are both equally redeemable in Christ. Okay? They're equally valuable in Christ and they're equally redeemable in Christ. So don't misread that. And then uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There we go. So here, this verse, Peter says that, first of all, there are distinctions between men and women, obviously. Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way showing honor to the woman. Some men are to honor women here, especially since they are the weaker vessel, and especially since they are heirs with us in the grace of life, right? So the husband is to see his wife as the heir of grace with him in Christ Jesus, and so he's to honor her in that way because they're both equal before Christ Jesus' eyes, and they're both equally redeemable. So men and women are distinct, but they are equally redeemable, they're equally to be resurrected, they're equally made in God's image, and they are equally fallen, but equally redeemable. And so, this equality then is expressed with the husband serving in his God-ordained role as the leader of the family. That is back from Genesis 23, you see that there. And with the wife fulfilling her role as the supporter and helper. That was from Genesis 2:18. And also here, also again in 1 Peter 3. So 1 Peter 3, before verse 7 there, Peter says in 1 through 6, if anyone's still there and wants to read 1 through 6 at all. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning Right, the hair and the thing on the gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adornings be the hidden person of the heart, 
with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good, do not fear anything that is frightening. Yeah, absolutely. So we see here the wife fulfills her role, supporter and helper. As a side note, you want to see some people get triggered by a verse in Scripture. You can see that in verse 6. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. But you just this is just another thing to highlight that, that man has the authority in the family as serving as the God-ordained role as the leader of the family and the wife fulfilling her role as the supporter and the helper in the family. Um, and men are to do this in a way, or to lead in a way, that makes it easy for the wife to come before him and say, yes, I want to come alongside you, I want to be your supporter, I want to be your helper. So men, you are to not be harsh with your wives, but you are to love them in a way that makes it easy for the wife to do that. And the wife is to love the husband in a way that it makes it easy for him to lead. So this is a part of that equal cooperation that is supposed to lead to an enriching of the life of both the woman and the man. So you see this, this is very clear in Scripture. All right. This male authority... Once again, it's to be exercised with love, with humility, and with respect. And this is all under the authority of Christ Jesus, like we already read in 1 Peter 3.7 and also in Colossians 3.19. So if someone wants to read that for us, Colossians 3.19. This is under the point of male authority exercised, is exercised in love, humility, and respect. And under the authority of Christ. So Colossians 3.19. There we go. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That is a clear command of scripture. Husbands are not to be harsh with their wives. Okay? And this is under the authority of Christ. And then female... On the other end, the female submission is not some sort of servile weakness, but this is a display of strength, and it's, more importantly, a display of trust in God, as in God's design. It's a trust in God as the woman uses all of her God-given abilities while refusing to usurp the male authority in her life. So one verse above there, in Colossians 3.18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Okay? That's clear there. Then in 1 Timothy 2.12, 1 Timothy 2.12 says, and someone can be turning to Titus 2 also, 1 Timothy 2.12, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, rather she is to remain quiet. So this is specifically in the context of of church government and to, to worship and in worship. But... Um, this, this comes under the point again, once again, that female submission is not some sort of weakness here, but it's a display of strength and trust in God as the woman uses her God-given abilities in, her, in the way that God has designed for her. So also in Titus 2, verses 4 and 5, someone will read that. This is talking about, talking about women, right? Older women specifically. Submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be 
There we go. So these are things that the women, especially the older women, are to do and to display their, their feminine power in doing these things that God has designed them to do. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to work at home, be kind and submissive to their own husbands, and to do all these things to amplify the word of God. These are the ways that women can amplify the word of God by acting in these ways. And so these are all the God-given abilities that God gives to women. Okay. So all that seems to be pretty, pretty clear from Scripture, I think, in my humble opinion. But there, there are problems with all this. There are problems because none of this is easy. Because none of this is, none of this is easy because of the fall. Because the fall greatly distorted the way that men and women were intended to function together. The fall greatly distorted the harmony that we were supposed to have with each other. And so if we go back to Genesis... In Genesis three sixteen, right? This is after the fall has happened and God is pronouncing the curses upon both Satan and the man and the woman. So the curses that he pronounces here, he says, specifically he's talking to the woman, says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Okay, that's one thing that doesn't really go forth to the relationship between man and woman. But the next, next sentence does. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, this is a curse to the woman, but it's also a curse to the man too. Okay, what this is is that God says part of the fall now, what's going to happen is that the woman and the man are still going to have these distinct roles. But the woman, because of her sinfulness, is now going to have a desire to usurp the male authority in her life, and the family life specifically. The desire is going to be contrary to the husband. So her desire is now going to be against her husband because of the sinfulness now that is in the world. And then the curse against the man is that the man is now going to have the desire to not like the woman because of this, and to despise the woman because she is now going to desire to rule over him. And because he now despises the woman, he is going to have the tendency to be harsh with the woman. And so all the commands later on to kill your sin and to do these things that are righteous before God's eyes are the woman now submitting to the male authority in her life in a godly way, in a way that displays Christ, And the man to not be harsh with his wife anymore, but to love her in humility and in respect and be gentle with her. And these are contrary to our fallen human natures now. But it's important that we fight against these things and we fight against the sinfulness of our nature. And we treat our wives, men, in the way that we're supposed to be. And they're supposed to be treated with with tenderness and gentleness and respect and to love them in a way that is uh, indicative of your servant leadership as the head of the home. And the wife is then to love her husband by submitting to him and to coming alongside of him as a helper and a supporter and to love him in the same way. Okay. And this is very, very distinct from the way that the world tries to function, right? But God's people, though, God's people are called to show the world how men and women are meant to relate in mutually beneficial ways, all for the glory of God. Right? And so when men and women function in this complementary way, They display something profound, something that is mysterious, something that Paul tells us displays the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. So we're going to end up here in Ephesians 5. If you'll turn there, I'll read that that passage which Paul.
Paul describes this, starting in verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So these are clear commands from Paul, clear commands from Christ through Paul. Paul goes there and he quotes a passage that's from Genesis and a passage that Jesus also quotes from Genesis. A white man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul is establishing this as part of the creation pattern and then points to what this creation pattern was ultimately meant to point to in the whole place and in, in the whole reason in the first place is that the mystery, the mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And Paul says it's a mystery here. He's not meaning like, oh, like this is not to be understood. No, it's a mystery in the sense that it has now been revealed as part of the New Testament, what was concealed in the old, and that this marriage thing the whole time was supposed to point to the relationship between Christ and the church, his bride. So as Christ gives himself up for his bride, the husband is supposed to give himself up for his wife. As the church then looks to Christ as her leader, the wife is supposed to look to the husband as her leader. And they're supposed to love each other in a mutually beneficial and a profound way, in a way that glorifies God. And so all of this comes to culmination whenever you realize that. This is all meant to point to something even better than us, right? It's supposed to point to Christ and his church. So that is the, the general overview. Obviously, each of those subtopics can could have an entire Sunday school lesson each on themselves. But this is just a general overview of God creating men, male and female, distinct, different, but mutually beneficial to each other. And they're supposed to love each other in that way. So I hope this is all clear. And I think it's, it's very clear that the Bible is clear on these things. This is, it's not complicated. We try to make it complicated, but it's really not that... Um, according to the biblical evidence, it's really completely undeniable that God created each individual human as either male or female. So I hope we can all agree with that. You probably all agreed with that before you came here today. I hope so. But if not, I hope you really do now after seeing what the Bible says about these things. But like we said at the beginning, our our present time uh, deception is commonplace. The attempt to deceive is a commonplace in our present time. Specifically, the T in the LGBT movement, it being the latest popular religion that we have in our culture. So we need to devote just a little bit of time. We've got a few minutes left to discussing the issue of transgenderism. Okay, so this is you know this is probably coming. So let's let's talk about it a little bit. First of all, 
we have to say just up front that there really there's no such thing as a transgender man and there's no such thing as a transgender woman. There's just a man, there's just a woman. And apart from some really, really, really rare cases of, of people that are hermaphrodites that are born with both, the extremely rare cases, um, and then a, a medical determination is made when one or more is the dominant there and the person lives their life as male or female from that point on. Those are extremely rare cases. But apart from that, there is, it is very clear who is a man and who is a woman. So there's no such thing as a transgender man and a transgender woman. It is a completely nonsensical term. Biologically, even if you just look at the, the apart from viewing their sexual organs, it's pretty blatantly obvious if you can view that. You don't go around looking for those things. But if you can view those things, it's obvious who a man and a woman is. But even if they try to hide it through some sort of external appearance, they can't truly hide it. Because each part, each cell, each piece of DNA that they have is encoded to display them as a man or a woman. Right? If you have a Y chromosome, you are a man. It's really that simple. And every cell, every piece of DNA for a person that has a Y chromosome tries to form that person into a man, physically, biologically. So, once again, transgender men, transgender women, that's not a thing. It's not a nonsensical term. What you have, then, is mentally unstable men or mentally unstable women, and women that are delusional, and they want affirmations in their delusions, these men and women do. And so that's kind of the first thing to state up front. There's really no such thing as this anyway, even if people try to convince you that there is. And the next thing that, that really um, is interesting, you can see this as sort of a religion. You can see transgenderism as a religion, a, a, a religion that's even distinct from the other part of the acronyms itself. Because you have, as a religion, you have these sacred things, which in this case are people's feelings. They're sacred. You have sins in this religion, sins like misgendering or non-affirmations or microaggressions. These are sins in this religion. You have penance for those sins, which is something like public shame, public confession, quote-unquote doing better, things like that. You also have an eschatology in this religion where the whole, whole world will one day realize that they're on the wrong side of history and become on the right side of history and the whole world is eventually going to come into agreement that anyone can be anything that they want to by simply declaring it, and that makes the reality then true. So you have an eschatology in this religion. But also, uh, the thing that really makes it resemble a religion more than anything else, and this is what really makes it distinct from the LGB part of LGBT, is that the core beliefs of transgenderism cannot be confirmed through any sort of natural observation, right? You can't, this cannot be confirmed by any sort of natural observation. And that's where it separates itself from science and becomes a religion. So a man who claims to be a woman cannot point to any sort of empirical or any sort of rational reason why he's a woman, right? This man says he's a woman because he feels like a woman. Everything in this religion is based on feeling. Everything in in this is based on feeling. It's something that they just know. And that is where you move from the realm of science into the realm of metaphysics. And when you start talking about metaphysics and start talking metaphysically, 
you've begun to form a religion. It's something that they just know. It's something that you, they can feel. It's something that's not observable. It's something that's not rational. So you've moved into religion now. And so here then is the greatest delusion of religion in the, of the modern self. This is all part of maybe an even broader religion, the religion of the modern self. And this is the big conclusion of the religion of the modern self is that we are all, we are all our own individual gods. And since we are all gods, then we can create our own reality. Right? And so that's what these people are doing when they make their false claims. When they make their false claims to anyone who lives in actual reality. We see things for the way that they actually are. We live in actual reality. But these other people, they're trying to create their own reality. And as their own gods, they can create their own reality because they have a different religion. But we know this is not possible. We know this is not possible because we know that God, the triune God, is the only creator. He's the only one that can create reality. The modern self cannot create reality. God, our Heavenly Father, is the only one that can create reality. And when God created reality, God created man, male and female. And it really is that simple. So this leads to some things for us, uh, ethics for us as Christians, as we, we live this out in the modern, the modern time. First of all, you love them, absolutely, absolutely. But love cannot confirm someone in their delusions, right? First of all, that's going to be a lie. You shouldn't lie. Um, and also, it's not loving to the person to confirm someone in their delusions. With any other sort of mental illness, you wouldn't want to affirm that at all either. You want to pray for them. You want to help them get help in overcoming these delusions. Right? So you would pray for them that they repent and they accept them for their true selves for who God made them to be. Who God made them to be male and female. And show them all the things that we just looked at to why this is a good thing. And now why God has made male and female distinct yet equal but this mutual cooperation leads to an enriching life for the man and the woman. And most of all, you know, ethically, you point them to Jesus, who saves all, who saves all male and female, which we've already looked at. And so, um, once again, that we could spend a long time on that. Um, running close to the end of time here. We've got probably five minutes left. I figured there might be a little bit of discussion here if y'all wanted to discuss things. So we can open, open the floor for that if you want to talk about some stuff. Ready? So I work at UNC like you do mm-hmm. in the healthcare setting mm-hmm. where seemingly, at least from different things I've seen, transgender 